I'd like to speak about the body this evening and uh, learning from the body. We could say body dharma. In our meditation, in our practice here in the yoga and the, the being on retreat, we notice that we have a body. At least I hope we've noticed that we have a body. But there's still opportunity if you haven't yet. But I, I, I guess, because of course you have noticed you have a body. And we've mentioned, we've referred to the fact that one of the features of the body is that it's here. It's now. As the mind can be all over the place, this is rather fortunate for us. Because in coming back to the body, and coming back to the expressions of the body, which include the breath, include movement, include sensation, we come back to where we are. We come back to the here and now. And we have the opportunity to learn some degree of wisdom in relationship to our body and also learn wisdom from our body. So we pay attention to it. The body is regarded as the first foundation of mindfulness, as taught as the first basis of paying attention in, uh, in the foundations of Buddhist meditation practice. The place to actually connect with the body in the body. So it's not about thinking about the body or looking at the body, but actually connecting with body as body, as a felt direct experience in the way we've been speaking about. And the other foundations that one is invited to connect with in this practice is the uh, aspect of our experience that's known as the feeling tone, the quality of pleasant, unpleasant or neutral that I spoke about this morning. To notice that element of all experience. Equally to notice is the third foundation, the state of our mind, the condition of the mind, what it's like. And I'll speak a little more about that tomorrow morning. The fourth foundation is noticing the contents of our mind, the kind of material that's moving through the thinking mind process. But coming back to the, the first foundation of mindfulness, the body. One of the teachings that lies at the heart of our practice and of our reality in fact is the fundamental or underlying recognition that our body is not forever that the body is subject to birth having taken birth having arisen as it does it's equally subject to aging to sickness and to death and this is not something that any of us are perhaps surprised to hear we all know that we're all quite aware of it and yet at some level it can be for us that something in us does not fully recognize or accept this simple and yet profoundly significant fact that the body is born, it grows old, it ages and it will die. To actually accept this reality, to not struggle with it and to live our life in the light of what this suggests is a large amount of what we do in practice. To actually contemplate the actuality of having a body, what it's like. It's like this. It's this experience we're having of this body that's not always as we want it. That isn't forever. And 
and recognizing this reality of our body as some of the fundamental features of our existence i.e. that our existence is not forever not in this form what can arise with that, what we can recognize, what we can see is fear fear is often the relationship we have to much of our experience certainly to the difficult experiences that we encounter experiences that may be quite immediate to do with discomfort in the body to do with challenging emotions or difficult patterns of thinking that we meet or external circumstances that we find threatening or challenging and yet fear as an experience itself is quite difficult it's quite a challenging thing to face and it has very deep roots in our body deep physical roots we tend to associate pain with danger with a threat to our survival, our existence and sometimes of course this is appropriate and useful and necessary I'll I'll touch on that a little later but what happens when we actually feel fear is that we uh, are moved or we we are driven to attempt to protect our body from harm and of course that makes sense to protect our body from harm and yet what we also are often trying to do at some level is protect our body from death which is very closely linked in the way our system is wired up now again this is quite appropriate to take care of to protect our body from harm or death to survive is something that's deeply wired into us and it has its place it has its importance that we have this within us and yet the way it plays itself out doesn't always serve us and the way that it happens for us is we tend to when, when we're not conscious of the process we get drawn into the uh, the mechanisms that are described in terms of or described in the in psychological um, traditions as the, the mechanism of fight or flight the process of fighting against our experience is something we might notice it has this kind of quality of puffing oneself up to become stronger to actually resist or to defend or to push off that which we feel threatened by there's a story which, um, which it's actually not a story so much as an account of an apparently true encounter that I enjoy sharing so I do it rather often um, it's a regular appearance on retreats I teach the story and it's um, a transcript of a radio conversation between a US naval ship with the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995 and it begins with a communication from the American ship that says please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision the Canadians respond recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision Americans this is the captain of a US Navy ship I say again divert your course the Canadians no I say again you divert your course and then the uh, from the Americans this is all in capital letters so I guess it's like shouting this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic fleet we are accompanied by three destroyers three cruisers and numerous support vessels you have a sense of something getting bigger I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north that's 15 degrees north 
or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadian. This is a lighthouse. <laughs> Your call. <laughs> and I think it rather sweetly illustrates the process that we can sometimes experience how we feel threatened by something and we somehow try and puff ourselves up to actually and we find it more in the thinking process where I'm right, it's like this, they should get out of my way, that's not okay. Um, and even in this, the sort of, the, you know, that's one five, you know, sort of demeaning, you know, you're stupid, you don't know what you're, what you're doing out there, one five degrees north, you know, not content to just say 15. Um, and yet, no matter how much we do that, in this situation, it's not going to make any difference. This is not something we can actually scare into backing off. And this, this, this sense of passing up is something that physically actually happens for us. I don't know if you've ever noticed a cat that's just been frightened. And it sort of, all the hair, all the fur stands up on end to make itself look bigger. So it's less likely to be attacked. Because it actually looks larger than it does with the fur. But if you've ever been frightened and you've noticed the back of your neck prickling, it's your body trying to do the same thing. It's trying to get bigger. The hair raising on the back of the neck to attempt to, to scare whatever we feel scared by or threatened by. And there's a, um, a fish that lives on the coast of the north of New Zealand to call a puffer fish. I don't know if it exists in this part of the world. But um, basically, when it feels threatened, it sucks a whole lot of water into its body and it puffs up. It becomes very large compared to what it was. So the fish that was perhaps thinking of eating it suddenly realizes, oh, this is a bit big for me, and leaves it alone. That's the theory. Of course, the problem with this is that once it's puffed itself up, it's not very flexible. It can't swim very well. It's not going anywhere. It's just this big bag full of water. And if the fish or the predator that's chasing it thinks that this isn't bad anyway, um, I'll still go for it, it can't really escape. And we have this thing of puffing ourselves up and yet in doing so we lose our fluidity, we lose our flexibility, our ability to move. And what we experience in that sense of fighting, that puffing up, is that we actually become rigid. We actually tighten, we actually harden. And just as the story of the ship meeting the lighthouse, sometimes life isn't going to move out of our way. It doesn't happen that way. We actually need to learn to be fluid in our response to it. And the contraction, the rigidity that comes from that response to fight off, to threaten, to scare, actually reduces our capacity to accommodate what we're meeting. Of course, the opposite happens as well. We notice that flight response, a sense of shrinking. Of course, you know, running away is a good option as far as flight is concerned, but sometimes we can't. And what we actually do is we contract inwards. Rather than kind of trying to puff out and solidify outwardly, we find ourselves shrinking inwards. And this is something we can actually notice as a pattern in ourselves. When we feel confronted with something fearful, we try and make ourselves invisible. We try and get small. And we can feel how in certain circumstances, often in front of other people, we kind of want to be small. We want to not be noticed. And again, there's, there's an animal. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the, pos the North American possum, the uh, 
the Australian possum doesn't do this, but the North American possum, when threatened, it, the, the kind of carnivores that generally threaten us um, will only eat live meat. They won't eat something that's dead. So the possum, when it feels threatened, it plays dead. It's called it's playing possum. You may have heard the expression. Um, so it plays dead. And this is great, because the bear that was going to eat it just thinks, hmm, it's dead. Leaves it alone. Of course, there is a problem with it again, because if whatever was going to eat it thinks, hmm, that looks good. It's lying there pretending to be dead. It's, it's not getting away very quickly either. And it's kind of vulnerable. And what happens for us also is that we kind of withdraw into ourselves. We kind of cut off, almost it's like we, we disconnect from our experience as somehow a way of avoiding the threat we feel from us. And this also does not actually serve us. It's such a strong and powerful pattern for us. When we, when we experience pain, immediately the mind starts to think, oh dear, I could hurt myself, I could injure myself. Now, sometimes that's appropriate, but often what actually happens is that the thinking runs way ahead of the experience. We're sitting there, and there's a little discomfort in the knee, and it's sort of twinging or tickling, or just a little uncomfortable, and we start thinking, well, that's okay, but what if it continues? What if it gets worse? What if it stays like this? And before we know it, we're imagining ourselves being wheeled out of Guy House you know, <laughs> to the ambulance and going off to the hospital. And, and then we've changed our posture without even realising that actually that was just a little twinge and it wasn't actually anything threatening to us. Likewise, when we feel ill, sometimes what happens for us is that there's a way in which it touches into our profound and deeply rooted fear of death. It can be overwhelming to actually just acknowledge the reality that the body experiences pain and sickness. I remember many years ago I was um, travelling in India and I got ill and I was actually pretty much carried to the hospital. A bit like a sack of potatoes. I wasn't actually up to moving my own body. And after I'd been there a day or two and they'd done all these tests, the doctor came in and said, well we think you might have hepatitis and possibly malaria as well and there might be something else. And I remember thinking in that moment, oh, that's it. There was just this way in which my whole thought process went, oh, well, that'll probably kill me. <laughs> and, and this, you know, it sounded pretty serious. Um, obviously, it didn't actually do that, so it was pretty serious. Um, but just this sense of how our attachment to body runs very deep for us. It's very primal and primary in our experience. And because of this, what happens when we experience fear, when we feel threatened in some way, we actually very quickly become lost or disconnected and overwhelmed by what is happening. It may not be in response to something so obvious as physical discomfort. It may be more to do with areas of experience that are unfamiliar or unknown, things that we can't predict or control that equally can seem very threatening to us. And with fear, What's really important to recognize, to notice, is that this is something that happens right now. Fear is always right now. The story of the fear, the thinking that fear generates is about the future, about what will happen if. It's never about what is now. It's about what will happen if. If this continues, if this gets worse, if it has this effect. But the experience is happening right now. If we remember that, if we can come back to where we are, to know fear is right now, to actually meet it in our body, to open to the experience, to be with it, then fear ultimately loses its power to condition our mind and to 
limit or control our lives. To actually be in touch with our body when we are confronted with something that's challenging or difficult. To not actually close down, but to open. To open again and again. This we're being invited and encouraged to do in our practice. And we see how strongly the habit of closing is ingrained in time. Closing down, because if we close down, either through the rigidifying, the sort of tightening of of anger, of fighting, of pushing away, or of shrinking, of contracting, of fear, that process of tightening down, tightening or contracting, actually numbs our bodily experience. We find it actually loses its aliveness. It becomes stiff, it becomes tight, it becomes rigid. And it actually becomes painful to experience, to be in. So opening to it, feeling into it, giving it attention actually brings us back into contact with a sensitivity that is actually quite precious and important for us. It's like we sometimes unintentionally or unconsciously choose the apparent safety of numbness over the challenge of actually being sensitive. And the way we can perhaps see that rather simply is how we wrap our feet in socks and shoes and boots and it's really quite nice to have a nice pair of shoes and go for a walk and not have to feel too much of what's underneath us. Sometimes say to people, it's a little cool maybe at this time of year, maybe not, but if you're doing walking meditation you're not really feeling like you're in contact with too much. Take your shoes off and see what it's like in bare feet our feet are actually remarkably sensitive and there's an amazing amount of experience to be sensed, to be felt and that's quite a sweetness in fact in just the simple contact of a step taken in the grass or on the floor. And yet because we wear shoes, because we wrap our feet or even just socks, we, we put something around it to keep it comfortable and of course to protect it from something sharp. So there's perhaps some wisdom in that protection but the cost of it is that often we don't really feel. We don't feel. And that, for that we pay a deeper price, which is actually a loss of the sense of vitality and nourishment from our simple daily experience. It's like, in order to protect ourselves from discomfort, we actually lose the connection to the aliveness, the vitality of our experience. The body is not in our control. The body has its own life. It's part of the nature of things. And it can be the basis for immense pleasure and sweetness and equally for intense pain and difficulty. And perhaps we've known both of these at times and we know them through our body. So we find our experience quite strongly if not profoundly conditioned by our body. And how much we look for that pleasant and how much we look to avoid that unpleasant experience. And because of that, because of the significance, the the powerful effect that pleasant and unpleasant experience through our body has for our life and for our mind, together with the fact that we can't control it, the mind tends to distrust. We tend to not really trust our body. We tend to want to override the wisdom of our bodies with our views and our opinions and our demands and our agendas. 
And actually learning to listen to the intelligence of the body, learning to trust it. To actually see what is it teaching? What is it telling me? The fact that we can't control what it reveals to us makes it a bit of a scary place to actually be fully present in. Because it might be difficult. It might ask of us things that we might not wish to be asked. But the cost of not being in our body is is immense. There's a story of um, Mullah Nasruddin, who's a Sufi teaching figure, and he's supposedly a wise man, but also sometimes it seems a fool. No one suspects his foolishness is simply to wake us up to our own. And one day, Nasruddin was down at the um, the market talking to some of his friends about a donkey that he'd had. He said, I had this remarkable donkey. It was so helpful to me. It took me everywhere I needed to go. It carried my firewood and my fuel, um, my, my food supplies back to my home because now I'm old and I can't do it. But you know, it used to eat so much grain. It was so expensive to keep. I didn't know what to do. So I thought, I know. I'm going to try feeding it less. And you know, I had this grain allocation and it was doing fine, it was wonderful. I thought, great. So I halved it again. And it was amazing. What a wonderful donkey, I thought. And eventually, you know, I got that donkey down to just one spoonful of rice a day. One spoonful of grain a day. And you know, if that donkey hadn't died, I'm sure I could have got it to live on nothing. (laughs) Sometimes we're like that with our body. It's like we start to withdraw from it. We start to remove ourselves from it. Because it seems the cost of being in it is too much. Because sensitivity isn't always easy. We wonder why we're in our heads a lot, you know? Anyone notice that they were in their heads some of the time? <laughs> Thinking? We think, we think, I'd like to not be in my head. But what other options are there for us? Oh, in our body. What happens when we're in our body? Sometimes it's not comfortable. Actually, quite often it's not comfortable. Even when we change our posture, it doesn't get more comfortable. That's not a coincidence. It's not a random event. But sometimes because the body is uncomfortable, we tend to find ourselves in our mind. As though the mind is an escape from the body. And yet, of course, being lost in our mind isn't a particularly pleasant escape. As we see when we're actually there, face it. It's quite uncomfortable to be lost in our mind. Stuck in our head. So coming back into our body, opening to the body, we actually ask to listen to it, to see how we relate so much to the body in its places of discomfort, with a sense of not wanting. And it's important to recognize that there are different experiences of discomfort. Sometimes pain is actually telling us something that we really need to pay attention to. But sometimes it's just something about the nature of the body and a lot to do with the way we relate to our body, the pressure we put on our body. A large part of the pain we experience is due to the the way the mind tries to control our experience, our emotional experience, through somehow compressing it and not having to feel it, particularly the difficult emotions, the painful, challenging ones, fear, anger, craving jealousy, grief, sadness, loneliness. There's quite a few. You perhaps know. And we don't really want to have to feel them. We don't really want to have to meet them. 
and yet they express themselves in our body so we can track down around our body to shut them out to close them down unconsciously, not intentionally we didn't choose to do that perhaps we learnt to do it at some time when we needed to do that because we were otherwise going to be overwhelmed perhaps as children before we came into our full adult capacity of heart and mind we learnt deeply those reactivities or those patterns and yet as adults we need to unlearn them in order to actually be free and to be alive and awake in our bodies, our minds and our lives and this involves feeling into as we've been encouraged and invited to do in the instructions and the meditations, the yoga feeling into the body to actually actually bring a kindness in the attention we give to our body to feel when there's discomfort what does it actually need from us? what does it actually need? we might think, you know, my life would be so much better if I never experienced discomfort it would be so much easier I mean, who hasn't had that thought? We just wished for the end of discomfort in their body. It would be nice, we think. But there might be some problems. If that was so, if we were to have that wish fulfilled. In my travels, I spent some time in Calcutta in India working with a street clinic that was providing medical care to the poor homeless people. And some of the people who were receiving care there were lepers. And while I was there, I learned something that quite shocked and surprised me about leprosy which for most of us as Westerners I imagine, well certainly for me my image has been of this horrible disease that makes bits of your body fall off and it's really disfiguring and horrible and what I learned there was that that is actually not what leprosy does leprosy kills the nerves so you can't feel any pain and people only poor and not particularly well educated people contract this they, they don't feel pain they cut themselves, it gets infected. They don't really pay attention or notice because it's not hurting. It starts to rot, falls off. They lose limbs, fingers. They touch something hot, they burn themselves. They don't know. The skin disintegrates, breaks down, tissue with it. And that's actually what leprosy does. And what was shocking to me and amazing was to see that for a leper, the most profoundly transforming thing that would benefit the quality of their life would be to feel pain. Now that's not to say that I'm advocating pain as the, the pathway or that we you know, get more of it. It's not a more pain, more gain or no pain, no gain teaching at all. But it's like getting some perspective around this particular experience in our life. The message that pain gives us, and it gives it very clearly, is that we need to pay attention here. Have you noticed that pain has that effect? You know, we might space out, we might get drowsy, we might, when, when there's no pain in our body, but when pain is in the body, we're very focused, we're very clear, we know this is what the attention goes to, very directly. Of course, we often wish it didn't have to go there, we'd rather it was with the breath or with something else, but when the attention goes to pain in the body, to actually feel that experience, to open to it, to notice how we can train, that doesn't mean it might not be appropriate to change our posture at some point to not actually get into a struggle with pain, as we've said but to actually feel it to actually not be so afraid of the experience itself to be able to listen and see what it is telling us because pain is sometimes telling us that we need 
to actually withdraw from the situation. It's true, we need to change the posture, we need to take our hand out of the fire. But sometimes what it's telling us is actually we need to enter into it. We need to actually bring to it our care and our attention. Because the pain isn't so much about a posture or about some harm that's being done externally to us through pressure coming from outside or from the posture. But it's actually about a place in which something is held. Something is held of the emotional life or the psychological life that we actually need to understand, that we actually need to see into as part of the transformation of our, of our life. Khalil Gibran and the Prophet said, Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. And just as the seed of the fruit must break open in order to stand in the sun, so too must you know pain. It's like, it's an aspect of our experience felt through the body, in the body. And if we can actually befriend it, if we can actually befriend our body, including that aspect of it, this is actually profoundly transforming. So much we want it to go away, we want to get rid of it. But actually, Although there's a lot we can do to reduce the degree to which we experience discomfort and pain in our body. The inevitable, and, and appropriate and fine to do that, the inevitable process of aging and the, the process of dying is one in which pain will be encountered. And we need in this to learn to stay open, to actually be able to be alive in the midst of this reality. With a physical or emotional pain, the tendency to close down is actually where it creates the suffering for us. It's not in the pain itself. It's actually the closing down, the contracting, the resisting, the fighting, the pushing away. And that's often the place in which harm will be done in our body as well. It's actually the struggle with it, the contraction around it. The sensation itself quite often is not that. It's simply a sensation that's inviting us to pay attention. And when we can feel into and open around it, that's often all that it needs. But the fear that gets caught with it, this we need to address, this we need to really make space for, to see very clearly. What is it to actually bring kindness into our body, into our bodily experience, actually bring friendliness to bear on our body. So much harshness, so much hardness we express towards our own physicality because of pain, because we don't like it, because we wish it didn't happen to me. Why me, we say. And yet all life, birth, involves squeezing out of a narrow channel. Going through life, so many times we're touched by the painful and the challenging. And the passing out of this life too will have that dimension to it. So what would it be now to embrace that? Not to seek for more of it, there's plenty enough already. 
not about becoming somehow getting into mortification or sort of some kind of ascetic practice where we punish ourselves. But actually, what would it be to care for our lives so deeply and profoundly that we cared equally for those places of pain in the heart, in the body, that we were willing to actually meet them and hold them with love and with kindness? To touch our body with with care, to touch our life with care. There's a, a poem that I think speaks of this by Galway Canal called St. Francis and the Sow. The bud stands for all things, even those things that do not flower, for everything flowers from within, of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing just as St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch blessings of earth on sow and the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slop to the spiritual curl of her tail from the hard spininess spiked out from her spine down through the great broken heart to the sheer blue milk and dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teeth into the fourteen mouths sucking and blowing beneath them the long perfect loveliness of sound To reteach a thing its loveliness. To invite our life to flower from self-blessing. Requires that we turn around that fundamental and so deeply ingrained reactivity of pushing away, of resisting, of hardening. And actually begin to open, to soften. To actually feel into our life deeply and profoundly to actually trust in our body in its life, in its intelligence when we do that it actually comes alive it remembers its own goodness its loveliness its wisdom and we perhaps start to sense that rather than being somehow our possession that we need to fix or control. The body has its own life, its own nature. It's not so much ours as we perhaps have imagined or believed. In one way, of course, it's ours, it seems, but, you know, the body, have you ever reflected on the fact that you're not the only inhabitant of your body? There's actually a remarkable number of beings living in one of these. We tend to think of ourselves as the main one, which is kind of nice, comforting. Of course, some of them, you know, we find actually quite useful. Some of them help us digest our food. Other ones are not quite so pleasant, the ones living in the crevices and crannies. I kind of have an interesting relationship with uh, with some that live between my toes and spent a large number of years trying to get rid of them. Variety of the fungus family you're probably quite aware of. 
And uh, there was a point at which I realised, well, you know, it seems like we're both living here because they certainly ain't going away. <laughs> and I'm not planning on going away, at least not for now. So perhaps we have to live here together. And there's a really interesting shift that happened. Actually, sometimes it's uncomfortable, even painful, if they get too enthusiastic down there. <laughs> but it seems like, you know, they only want a little bit to live on. And I seem to have staked their claim. <laughs> and it's a really interesting shift when you start to see it like that. Okay, so this is a co-housing project. <laughs> you know, rather than me. Because initially it's kind of offensive to think there's something growing between my toes. <laughs> you know, despite the uh, vast range of different sort of pharmaceutical and natural products that have been uh, inserted there, it's still there. So there's a point at which it's kind of like, okay, this is the truth. <laughs> Some of these uh, things, you know, we couldn't live without. Some of the ones in our bacteria, the bacteria in the gut that help us digest, we couldn't live without. What would it be to look at our body as something we get to use, rather than mind that should be a certain way and different than it is? It's something we get to. It's remarkable that we get this body to use. It's much harder to do meditation without one, I can tell you. It's kind of amazing that we have this. And if we actually see it as something like a gift, perhaps then we start to feel differently about the fact that it's not always the way we want it. We might feel moved to share it a little bit even. I mean, there's stories in the tradition of, you know, remarkable offerings that, uh, you know, that, that says that in one of his lifetimes, if you kind of relate to the idea of lifetimes, or well, certainly the story is there of the Buddha having once come across a, a dying lion. She was starving, not dying, sick and starving. And with some... Um, if you get the story right, it was a tiger. Dying lion. Not if you lay. A sick tiger with, with two cubs who were, who were, who were starving at her, her breast. She couldn't hunt to get food. And it said that he threw himself at the feet of this tiger so she could feed herself and nourish her baby. And then I think, wow, that's a remarkable sort of thing. It's a bit beyond sort of conceiving really that one might do that. So again, it's not a suggestion that we try and practice that, but um, just kind of, well, what? how must one understand one's bodily life to share it in that way? Or another story which I really love was um, Ryokan, a Zen monk from the uh, Middle Ages, who's a delightful character. And apparently he was once observed on a cool winter's day, but probably not that similar from today, taking the life out of his robe and putting them on a rock in the sun to warm themselves and sun themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and even more remarkably, at the end of the day, picking them up off the rock and putting them back in the robe. I <laughs> think, gosh, amazing. I mean, we might feel pretty stretched whether we can just allow a mosquito to have a couple of drops or something like that. But just, do we notice how something in the heart changes in the way we relate to our body? even just hearing of such stories or reflecting on them. That if this body isn't so much me or mine, perhaps we would have a different relationship to it. We'd be willing to inhabit it even when there's difficult experiences going on. I mean, it does take a real wisdom to know when we need to take care with something. When we need to not force or, or to not just put up with pain, and I'm not suggesting that at all. But there are times when actually being with the difficult, there's a purifying fire that we experience in that. It can be quite transforming. And sometimes it's also the place in which we reach into the flame 
Or we think, it's burning, I should take my hand out. Fine, that makes sense. But sometimes we're putting our hand into the heat because we need to actually take someone else's hand who's in the flame and pull them free. And, I mean, probably more metaphorically than literally for most of our lives, sometimes we stand in places of challenge or difficulty because we're actually seeking to act in the service of something that is wholesome or good. And we can't do that unless we can accommodate a certain amount of challenge and difficulty without shying away. Because most worthy endeavours in this world simply learning what it means to wake up and certainly to be ser- of service in this world are challenging and difficult and involve us being able to face those dimensions of our experience. So we, we actually come into our body. We come to explore it. To see what it is to be alive. And what is this body itself if we really look at it? It's a hollow tube. Kind of put food in one end and some of the remains of that go out the other. And you can see the arms and the legs are pretty much involved in getting us food and preventing us from becoming food. Now that's what the basic body thing is all about. And this bit figures out where the food is that we can get or where there's anything that might think we're food so we can get away from it. And that's, you know, kind of basic biological formation or structure. Getting to food and getting away from becoming food. And yet, if we just look at it more from the inside, what's it like as an inner experience, the body? And when you sit here, can you notice where your bottom stops and the cushion or seat begins? What does it feel like in that place? Isn't what we notice simply an area, a region of contact? That isn't one or the other, but simply a meeting? Can we really say where the inside is and where the outside is if we close our eyes and just feel it? Where does your skin end and the world begin when your eyes are closed? What do you feel there? Is it a distinct line or is it something soft, porous, amorphous, changing? What is it, this body? What is it speaking to us when we sense it in that way? Our body when we actually notice what it is rather than trying to make it be what it is not our body actually speaks to us of the way things are it has its nature and it reveals the nature of all things we see our body changes as we go through life just as all things change the body comes and at some time it will go just as all things that come will one day pass this is so. And really seeing that as part of our truth. Seeing that most of what happens that's of primary importance here happens by itself. Our heart beats. We don't do it. The breath happens. I mean, it's fortunate the breath happens by itself because if it didn't, as soon as we stopped paying attention to it, it would stop. I mean, then we'd have some real problems. But it doesn't. It just keeps going by itself. You put food in your mouth, your body digests it and it grows out of that stuff that was on your plate. It grows this. Remarkable. It doesn't always grow it where we want it to. It grows it in the wrong place sometimes, unfortunately. But that's part of its amazing character. Its amazing capacity of intelligence. And it's actually the basis of our shared experience. We all have one of these. And while we might think that our body makes me separate because it's over here and it's not that one over there and I'm not saying that that's your body 
well this isn't your body but at another level the fact that we all share this experience of passing through birth and death we all share this experience of life lived through a body that speaks to us of something common of something shared that is not defined by or ultimately dependent upon our body and yet is equally revealed through our body and through anything else to actually be in communion with our body to be connected to be in our body is to be in communion with life is to feel the intelligence of life speaking to us and what it actually says to us when we feel more deeply into it is that we are not apart from life that this is life manifesting, unfolding, expressing itself and its invitation to us is to be a conscious participant in that to awaken the body to awaken the life more and more fully Could we just sit quietly for our son of the place? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.